How can teachers use journalism and reverse mentorship to transform student learning? Today on the show, I am joined by Dr. Ed Madison to explore this question. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. (sighs) If you ever wanted a reason to start a podcast, this might be it. So for the past several months, I've been reading and writing about journalism in schools, and I've been coming across several articles by this scholar, Ed Madison. I've talked about his work back on episode 65, but here's the thing. Those people writing those articles and books, they're just real people that you can reach out to, that you can ask them questions of and invite them onto your podcast. So I was over the moon when Dr. Madison agreed to come on the show today to talk about his research and work with the Journalistic Learning Initiative. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Ed Madison. Dr. Madison is an associate professor in the School of Journalism and Communication at the University of Oregon and one of the founders of the Journalistic Learning Initiative. JLI empowers students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and engage in self-directed learning through project-based storytelling. Ed got his start in the media world covering initial stories from the Watergate scandal when he was a high school intern for a local breakfast television program, and at 22 was a founding producer on CNN. And then he went on to work on many, many projects from game shows to talk shows and seemingly everything in between. In this interview, we talk about what reverse mentorship is and what it can do for teacher and student learning. We get into some of the challenges and opportunities with teaching young people responsible communication on social media and the ever-changing landscape of student press. If you work with young people, if you care about media literacy, if you're curious about non-traditional models for teacher learning, this is an important episode to listen to. I am so excited to share this conversation with you. Let's get right into it. Ed Madison, you are a big figure in the world of scholastic journalism and media education. I've been reading and citing your writing over and over again this term. So it is truly an honor and a privilege to get to speak with you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm I'm pleased to be here. I'd love to start with your story. You got an early start in media as a high school student intern. At 22, you became a founding producer for CNN. One of your parents was a teacher and the other was a journalist. Can you tell us how you got started in media and who was young Ed growing up in the school system? Oh boy. (laughs) Well, um, as you mentioned, yeah, my mom taught like fourth and fifth grade and my dad was a trailblazing journalist. He was actually the first African-American to join editorial staff at the Chicago Tribune like back in 1961. So he covered the civil rights movement. He knew Dr. King. Um, And uh, we moved to Washington DC around when I was about seven or eight. And um, it was a a pretty um, interesting time, you know, in history. I mean, first of all, just living in the nation's capital, but also on the heels of of the civil rights movement and the women's movement and, you know, just so many different, um, you know, movements um, that it was just incredible to kind of grow up and be a part of all that. Um, I can remember just being a fan of like talk radio uh, and uh, and listening and getting very interested in both politics and current affairs at a very, very early age. And then um, when I was in high school, uh, there was a, 
you know, a, a flyer on a billboard in a counselor's office about an internship program uh, at uh, Channel 9, which was the CBS affiliate station that happened to be across the street from um, our high school. And um, so I, I wrote my essay. And one of the things that's kind of interesting is that uh, at the time, my dad had switched from news work uh, and more into broadcasting. So he was working in community relations at Channel 7, which was the ABC affiliate in Washington. So I go in for my interview uh, and, uh, you know, I get to, I'm a finalist. And at one point, one of the committee members says, you know, doesn't your dad work at Channel 7? And I go, yeah. And they go, oh, this is for kids who don't have that leg up. <laughs> uh, and so um, they sent me home and I was devastated. But then they called two days later and they said, one of the kids that we selected decided not to do the program. And we talked to this committee and we felt like it wasn't fair to hold it against you that you know your essay was really outstanding and everything else. And so that's what launched me. And it was amazing. You know, one of the weeks um, of the six-week internship program was on their local morning show. And this was as, it's going to make me sound really ancient here, Watergate was unfolding. <laughs> and so it was like a front row seat to history, quite honestly. And at what point did you say, I need to become Dr. Ed Madison? Like, I need to go and get a PhD in this. Uh, you know, it's not something that had ever really been on my radar, but I can remember being a student at Emerson and having a professor, Dan Lounsbury, who was, a you know, just a really uh, legendary producer, uh, and he would show us his old kinescopes. I mean, we're talking really old here, uh, time, uh, and, uh, and thinking to myself, you know, I could do this one day, uh, you know, just this notion of, of, of later in life, uh, contributing to students in the same way he, he had contributed to us. I was really captivated by something that I've been reading in your scholarly writing, specifically around reverse mentorship and the role that bringing in working professionals and especially recent journalism graduates into programs and what they can do in terms of supporting teachers, implementing genres of writing that perhaps they haven't had experiences with. Can you speak a little bit about the benefits and the challenges of reverse mentorship in teacher learning? Walk us through that a little bit. You know, I think that often you can walk into a classroom and you can see a metal uh, cabinet on wheels uh, in, in, in the corner that's locked or either the IT department hasn't uh, connected, uh, you know, the devices that are inside uh, to the internet yet. Um, and it's, it could be filled with tablets. And I think that one of the issues is that a lot of times teachers um, just don't feel like they've been trained properly or had the chance to really understand how to make use of these devices. And so they're concerned about just, you know, chaos, utter chaos, kids, you know, surfing the web to inappropriate sites. Um, and so, um, you know, when we started with our journalistic learning initiative program in Junction City, um, Oregon, um, at a middle school there with sixth graders, um, we had we were with a teacher who was quite um, definitely uh, professional and had been doing what she'd been doing for a very long time, but just the notion of using uh, Zoom, you know, um, and at that time it would have been Skype, uh, to interact to open the world. Uh, to her students uh, wasn't something that um, she had ever done before. And it wasn't something that the IT department within the school district even allowed, you know, so we had to get special permission. But if you think about rural school students, and particularly middle school students in high, in high school, but middle school, 
um, their access to field trips is somewhat limited. You know, it's, uh, there just aren't necessarily that many opportunities and resources. So as part of our program, we would bring in um, a, uh, you know, a recent graduate who's um, a millennial, you know, uh, and who is savvy about how to use these technologies and can ass assist and support the teacher in how to make the best use of them. Yeah, when I had been doing my own journalism unit in my own classrooms, there was just so much about that genre of writing that I didn't really understand until I had gone through it at least like two or three times with my own students. And when I had actually connected with real journalists who that's what they do every day, all day, the insights that they were able to offer me like I'm really great at classroom management, really great about pedagogy. I know how to like design assessments, but I was not an expert in this particular form of communication. And my own experience was that once I actually started collaborating with, you know, real working professionals, the things that I was doing with my students actually mirrored more what was happening in the real world and mirrored more authentically, you know, real journalism that was happening outside of the classroom. That for me was just so powerful to see how you could do that in a classroom. Like, do you think this is a scalable model that like could be implemented for all teacher learning? Uh, yes, and, and yes, and yes, and. <laughs> so um, I, I think that, um, you know, uh, one, one of the, the things that we talk about in our research is we use the term near peer. So a near peer is someone who's maybe three or four years or five years older than you. And, you know, there's a, so there's a shared language, there's a shared, um, you know, interest and, and kids don't, we don't necessarily have that structured. And, you know, in the way we, we organize school for kids, we've got kids who, you know, maybe they don't have someone at home who attended college or they don't have uh, role models, you know? And so by sending a, a young person who's a college level student into the classroom, they now have somebody they can ask all kinds of questions. What's it like to live in a dorm? You know, what's it like to, you know, they have all these different questions. And so that really works. So that's a really wonderful piece of it. I will say that um, more recently, uh, we've shifted our model a bit where we're wanting to be able to support teachers who may not have access to a, you know, a young budding journalist to come into the classroom. Uh, and so we have uh, online uh, training materials that teachers can, uh, can um, you know, take, takes about eight hours to go through them. Um, and they can actually, we have it tied in so they can actually earn uh, professional development units and a graduate credit through University of Oregon while they're doing the training. Um, and then we um, are able to facilitate, you know, uh, webinars and sessions to support them ongoingly, but it gives them the tools to be able to actually do our work with their students without having uh, somebody at their side. Hmm. Has it been harder to get teachers that want to collaborate with a younger budding journalism school graduate or harder to get the young journalism grad to come into schools? Like what is harder to get investment in? Well, I think with our program, um, one of the, the really important pieces is that we only go where we're invited. Mm -hmm. um, we're not, and we're not here to fix anybody. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there are, there are, you know, so many instances, um, particularly, um, you know, uh, where universities have come down with their suggested 
curriculum, you know, uh, with and with no not being informed by teacher practice. I mean, teachers uh, know better than anyone, you know, what's going to be best for their students. So, so we, we're we're very cautious about that. In terms of your question, inevitably the the young people that are attracted to our work at the college level are people who had a great experience in college, you know, in high school journalism. And they just, you know, they, they love the idea of being able to sort of pass that on to the next generation of students. The way that model was designed was that, you know, so you finish your senior year, maybe you've graduated and maybe you want to work 20 hours a week um, while you're still building your portfolio and it almost becomes sort of almost like a half of a gap year while you're transitioning into your mm-hmm. full-time, you know, professional year to be able to, you know, be of service to a classroom of, of you know, students and a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. That is a really relevant point. I'm just interested in how everything that I've read around scholastic journalism, it feels like it is much more prevalent in high schools than it is in middle schools. I think I read somewhere that, you know, by the time they graduate, this is like a 2002 statistic, I think 11% of all high school kids have had some kind of journalism credit, Um, but it's less common in middle school. So I was interested that you chose middle school as an area to focus on. And sometimes the way that like research kind of happens is that like that was the teacher that was available or willing to partner with us. Um, I'm wondering if that is strategic to focus on middle school, but I'm also interested in the choice to include journalism as part of the classroom versus a co-curricular and extracurricular experience. Can you speak a little bit about those choices? Yes, uh, absolutely. So um, our program is very much informed by the work of Esther Wojcicki, who is our uh, co-founder and who I had the real privilege of just crossing paths with at a a conference uh, at Stanford when I was looking for a dissertation topic. And Esther is a, you know, renowned uh, education thought leader. She took the program at Palo Alto High School from like 20 students to like 700 students, you know, uh, I mean, really amazing over over uh, many many years, um, and it's just an outstanding program. And when I when I met some of her students, um, the, at the time I met her at this conference with, you know, um, at Stanford, actually, I was like, who are these kids? I mean, they were just so poised and sharp, and I wanted to learn more about it. And so that's kind of informs uh, the the work that we do. Uh, So I thought initially that our work would be focused mostly on high school for that reason. And then through another program I was working on, I met this middle school teacher who said, you know, um, I did journalism, you know, in college and high school, and I really want to do journalism with my kids and I'd be up for trying something. So that's kind of how we kind of stumbled on the middle school piece of it. Although I will say that we really believe that middle school is the sweet spot because in sixth grade in particular, because kids are coming from a situation where they've had the same teacher all day long to now having to learn how to organize their time around different periods and different teachers. Um, But not only that, middle school is the place where kids start to form opinions that become solidified around what they can and can't do. Mm. I can't write. I'm not good at math. And so if you catch them at that sixth grade level before the collars turn up, there's moose in the hair and makeup and all that. There's still that spark of innocence, you know, uh, and, and that's why we, we think that middle school is such an important, important period. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. There is something really important about those like 
six, seven, eight years. Um, I, like that's where my favorite teaching years have always been. And there's something about that age where they're halfway between child and adult and they are still, they can still be flexible in their thinking. Like the things that have blown me away the most when doing this kind of work with 14 year olds is you can actually have them start to interrogate multiple perspectives in a way that sometimes later on we get really entrenched in our own political views or ways of seeing the world or what our parents think. But when actually interviewing people that think totally differently about a topic than they do, it's like the first exposure to realizing, oh, my way of seeing the world is not, not only not the only way, but it not, may not necessarily be the right way. It's like that teasing open. Yeah. To start that in middle school, I feel like establishes a foundation for high school and undergrad that really shifts the game. Yes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's interesting too. Like I have read really recently that the Stanford history education group is talking about fake news and the ability of middle school students, particularly to discern real from fake news. And the word that they used was bleak. They said, middle school's ability to discern real from fake news is bleak. This is coming out in 2016. So perhaps it's like abysmal now, like, like the word that they might use have gotten even worse. But I'm wondering about that idea of being able to read and understand the news and being able to write and work through complicated stories on their own. Do you see, there's there a relationship between young people writing as journalists and being able to critically engage with news online. Yeah, well, I think that you know there's been such a proliferation of entertainment news, and when I say entertainment news, I'm talking about you know from comedians like John Stewart and Stephen mm -hmm. Colbert, um, who both are you know not doing what they were doing then, but then there's still you know John Oliver and. And I think it's kind of, there's been this blurring. I mean, when I talk to my own college students about this, I, I, I try to have them understand that there was a time when, you know, there were three networks and, and there were anchors that anchored the six o'clock news and when, what they said was what you trusted, mm -hmm. right? Then you had a lot of other more like tabloid shows come along and take up use of the desk, which was the anchor desk was sort of this sense of authority. And those shows were often adjacent and still are adjacent to news. And so for many people, they don't necessarily know the distinction. Hmm. They don't know the distinction between what they see on prime time on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC, which is more commentary, and what, they, what you can find in the daytime, which may look or more like news. And I think that the problem with that, I mean, you know, again, people don't read newspapers anymore, but you knew if it was on the front page, that was straight news. And then there was an editorial page and then there was a sports page and then there were the comics and all those other things. And so these distinctions are kind of blurred. And so it's quite understandable that not only students, but adults for the most part, don't necessarily make distinctions about what they're watching. Things get called news that, you know, really aren't. <laughs> yeah. And it's even worse with social media and with, you know, just seeing things in your feed. It's not necessarily you know, one newspaper that they're picking up from the New York Times, it's, you know, just seeing like headlines or seeing things that are coming at them. What are some of the long-term impacts that you've noticed with students doing the work with you? Well, we just had our um, 
big fundraiser on Friday night. And there are two young people who were in that original sixth grade class mm. now, that are now 11th graders. Uh, and, and we continue to do work with during the worst of the pandemic, we had them hosting interviews on issues related to uh, COVID. You know, it's just, it's just amazing to, to see them and others that we've talked to years later who may not have necessarily been involved with our program throughout, but that single experience in sixth grade left a, left a, uh, a mark. Um, so that's really exciting to see that they start to realize, um, you know, just the biases and, uh, you know, just how they how they might jump to conclusions based on just the first thing that comes up on Google. Were they more likely to continue participating in journalism as they went into high school after the grade six experience? If their if their high school had a program, you know, there's uh, it's become so complicated now. Just uh, you know, issues around social media. I was just visiting one of our high schools down in uh, Roseburg, Oregon, uh, earlier this week, and they're having an issue with young some students, a few. Uh, bad actors uh, setting up sites where they're they're basically shaming other students, like taking mm. photographs of them staying and things like that. You know, um, and it's traumatizing. I mean, uh, uh, I also think um, when you think about um, you know Snapchat and you know uh, my own kids came up just as that was kind of becoming a thing, and this notion, this idea that you can put something out there that disappears. So just put anything out there, you know? Uh, and so it's, 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 um, we're in a really interesting time, you know, mm -hmm. uh, with TikTok and everything else. I mean, we know that these, while there's, I'm not a person who, you know, is down on social media completely, but I do think that what's missing in the curriculum is teaching kids to, um, to use it responsibly, to set boundaries for how you allow others to interact act and engage with you. Be thoughtful about what you're posting. Ask yourself, why am I posting this? You know, mm -hmm. um, are the people that you like, you know, are they really your friends? You know, those kinds of things. There was an article that I read, um, and I'll put the link for it in the show notes about a group of high school kids who had posted an article on their school's like online newspaper. And they got like a tremendous amount of backlash from it. Like there was actually, you know, people in the community that were writing in, the person that they were writing about in the article were writing in, and it turned into this like social media storm, essentially. And what I like was struck about that was that, you know, like it was responsibly reported, like they were actually like doing it under the guidance of their mentors. So it wasn't like things that were just posted online flippantly. But they were going through that online discourse with teachers mentoring them and with teachers like kind of modeling that because I think like the social media space for young people is often like with the absence of adults kind of mentoring them and guiding them like how do you deal with this, how do you work with somebody who's posting troll like comments on your page. Do you think like students who are posting critically online about things in their community do you think that they're is space for adults to mentor them through that process? Like if they're actually reporting about things and posting it in social media spaces, but then they get backlash for it, or there's like a, you know, social media firestorm that erupts from that. Is there space for adults to mentor students through that process? Because real journalists go through that all the time. Well, we definitely, so that, I mean, this is a, uh, this is key to, to, to our, um, our central program right now. So the central program, uh, uh, journalistic learning initiative, um, 
uh, is facilitating now is something called Effective Communicators. Um, that's the name of the course. And it's a 10-week, uh, 45 lesson materials that teachers, and it's inten intentionally designed to be embedded into the English language arts uh, curriculum. So not a standalone, to address the question you asked earlier, not an elective, not an extracurricular activity, but something that we think is essential. Um, so, you know, um, we know that kids who communicate effectively, earn higher grades, um, are able to, you know, present themselves in a job interview uh, or develop more confidence. I mean, these are sort of somewhat uh, common sense, uh, but yet while communication is definitely a part of the, you know, of, of other courses and English, to really double down on communication as being like an essential skill. Mm -hmm. you know, and so that's that's what we're doing with that particular program. I think that, you know, it's quite common for schools to want to, you know, stamp out, you know, okay, no phones, no social media, mm -hmm. try to ban it. And that doesn't work because what it does is it takes it outside the school and it gets worse. And so I think that it's almost essential to have a dialogue and a conversation with students about um, the importance of these topics uh, and they're hungering for it. You yeah. know, they're realizing that, I mean, in this group of kids that we talked to the other day, that was just like, they were expressing concerns about what it's like, the anxiety or the, the how, how anxious they get when, uh, if they can't, if they don't know where their phone is, you know, like, oh my God, where is it? And, you know, uh, and, um, and, and just also the way in which they, they feel that they actually have to, um, uh, you know, uh, present themselves uh, publicly through and, and pose. I mean, it's interesting. If you look at the photographs of young people, even a decade ago or 15 years ago, we have candid shots. It's not posing and, and, and all that stuff that people do now. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I was recently on a like a Zoom panel call, like as a observer of high school journalists. And they brought up something really interesting that I wanted to get your perspective on. A number of them were talking about their high school newspaper publications having, I don't wanna say censorship, I think that's part of it, but school administrators pushing back against some of the articles because they were presenting their schools in negative lights or they were, you know, the administrators were not comfortable with some of the angles that students were taking. In your experience working with student journalists, have you noted any tensions in terms of students writing about things that present schools in a not so great light or the, the pushback that sometimes school institutions have? Because journalism is really about a democratic institution and schools are not democratic at their very nature. They're not set up to be that way. Have you noticed any tension there? Well, so in, in the US, um, you know, there was a Hazelwood decision, which is a Supreme Court decision that basically allowed um, censorship of student journalism. Um, now, there are about, I'm going to guess, I think about eight or nine, maybe 10 states that have anti-Hazelwood legislation, which in the California and Oregon being two of those states, which basically protect free speech for student journalists. Um, a uh, journalism teacher that I respect, um, Ellen Austin, uh, who's in Northern California said, you can be in civics class learning about freedom of speech and first amendment 
and then go down the hall and not be allowed to actually practice it <laughs> because of these uh, because of this this particular Supreme Court ruling. Now there there is a wonderful organization called the Student Press Law Center, uh, and they advocate for student uh, journalists. Um, they actually even have a hotline you can call if you feel that you know something is being uh, if something's being censored unfairly. Um, you know, they will uh, step in and give advice. It's a problem. And, you know, we certainly know that we're living in highly politicized times um, when there are various movements to try to control, you know, what discussion, uh, open discussion uh, in classrooms. It's a, it's a very concerning time. Um, we'll have to see kind of how it all shakes out. But I think that the, the role of the student press is a really important one, you know, in the same way that um, traditional press is designed to be a watchdog um, and, you know, a watchdog on power, quite honestly, uh, student journalism should be the same thing. So, um, you know, it's certain states, um, there definitely is censorship uh, and uh, in other states, it's not. That's why it's important to have advisors. Uh, you know, the, the uh, Journalism Education Association here uh, does a great job of training and supporting advisors and, mm. um, you know, that's really, yeah, that gives me a lot of other rabbit holes to go down in terms of the Canadian <laughs> context as well. I mean, this is why I love these conversations. And every time I read an article, I'm like, and now I have 10 more that I want to read, but yeah, <laughs> I'm curious, like how that pans out in Canada and like, what are the actual, um, rulings that have impacted student journalism here. So thank you. I've got lots of future homework. Um, <laughs> we always close every conversation off with a ticket out the door, which is just, you know, random questions to get to know Ed Madison more as a person. Are you up for some silly rapid fire questions? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Something you are grateful for right now. I'm grateful to be a professor at the University of Oregon. Um, you know, we have a amazing faculty and even more amazing students and, and a fantastic dean who um, just really supports the work that, you know, we do through JLI. Um, and so I, you know, working with students keeps young, um, you know, I took students to New Orleans uh, over winter to, you know, report on communities of color and how they're uh, their resilience in the face of uh, several hurricanes and uh, COVID and all of that. And so those kinds of opportunities are just, um, I feel blessed. Mm -hmm. I love that answer. In a time when so many people in education are feeling frustrated and burnt out, that is a really great answer to hear. What is the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? I, so if it's a Monday, Wednesday, or Friday, I go to the gym at uh, 6am. And if it's a Tuesday, Thursday, or Sunday, I go to a yoga class. <laughs> Yay, that's a great answer. What is the last thing you do before you go to bed at night? Unfortunately, probably check my phone. <laughs> <laughs> like the rest of humanity. I love it. What was the most recent TV show you binged and loved? Oh, um, an English scandal, uh, season two uh, on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, very, very interesting story about uh, Duchess and uh, and money and power and intrigue. Yeah. Amazing! I love all those things. I'm adding it to my never-ending list. Pie or cake? Uh, pie. Beach or mountains? Uh, mountains. Spring or fall? Fall. What would be your last meal on earth? I am really kind of experimenting with a lot of sort of Vietnamese curries and things like that right now. As a matter of fact, um, 
and and also Thai food. Um, mm. We want to go to Thailand, so I would say a really good Thai pad Thai or something like that. Would... Mm. If you weren't in <laughs> media and if you weren't a professor, what would be your alternate career path? I think maybe psychology, um, particularly humanistic psychology. I'm, you know, I I I uh, I think that psychology is a really interesting field, and yeah. The final question we ask everybody on the show is a big one. So come at it wherever you feel like is appropriate for you today. What do you think is the future of learning? Oh, wow. I think the future of learning is going to be uh, more individualized. I think the notion that every kid should be on the same page on the same day is ludicrous. <laughs> um, I think that VR and AR are going to provide uh, opportunities for rich and immersive um, experiences that students can uh can actually uh, go places and still be at home. And mm. Madison, I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing in education and in journalism. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. If this conversation resonated with you, do me one small favor. Take a screenshot of the podcast playing in whatever app you're listening to it on and post it up on Instagram stories, tagging teaching tomorrow. So I get a sense of what you liked, your reflections and what you want more of. It's a really simple way to break down the fourth wall of podcasting and for us to get to know each other better. In the show notes for this episode, there are links for where to find Ed Madison, the Journalistic Learning Initiative, and all those incredible programs that Ed was referencing, as well as a few other points mentioned in this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Teaching Tomorrow podcast and rate and review the show on whatever platform you are able to do so. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep asking those big questions, and remember, we are Teaching Tomorrow.